To all you graduates, as you go out into the world, my advice to you is, don't go. It's rough out there. Move back with your parents. Let them worry about it. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, welcome to the Tropical MBA Podcast. How you doing this week, boss man? I am doing excellent. How about you? I hear you're on family vacay. Is that true? I'm on family vacay. We are uh, actually, you know, I was mentioning, I maybe should sell this package tour. This is a really good intro tour to Asia. I should write it up for blog readers. We've been to Hong Kong, Hanoi, and now we're in the south of Thailand, and we're going to end things up in Bangkok. It's been an incredible trip. My parents' first time in Asia. Their minds are blown, but I think they're in love. You can't lose with these locations. There's just so much to see, to do. They're so different. It's been really cool to share that with my family. Yeah, I'm jealous I'm not on that trip, man. It sounds like a lot of fun, especially Hanoi. That place is like so much different than the West, you know? It's just a mind blower. It's intense. (laughs) So my parents were very happy to have me there to show them the way. And a few listeners of this show helped us out as well. Speaking of my family, Ian, as you know, we are just huge Penn State fans. Like huge. Like the household would shut down every single Penn State game. My father went there. My parents lived there for many years in State College. I spent my whole senior year of high school basically hanging out in State College. (laughs) So I was absolutely delighted when Brian, who's a podcast listener, reached out to us and said, hey, I'm a professor at Penn State, and I teach a class where you guys are on the syllabus, and I'd love for you to answer some questions from my best students. I couldn't resist, especially since I feel like I just got out of college mentally. It's been a long time since I have, but I still feel like that, Ian. I can still remember what it was like leaving school and feeling terrified about the real world. I'm assuming that kids nowadays are a little bit better prepared thanks to the internet. You know, when we went to school, Ian, we used to look at giant phone books full of listings of universities, and that was what we made our decisions on. Like, quite literally, I remember like the little thumbnails that would be like, oh, Florida Southern University looks palm tree that looks nice (laughs) you couldn't follow up on that like you couldn't google it or figure out what was going on i think sometimes they send you a little cd or something too a little cd rom pop that bad boy in there it was like the little disc too it wasn't the big disc (laughs) well let's just hear from brian about what he's doing with his students and what they're learning about this semester hi dan brian client here currently an instructor at the penn state university where I've developed curriculum in social media marketing, as well as hospitality, sales, and marketing. I've required my students for the past two semesters to tune into your podcast, where we would have some dialogues surrounding various topics presented, mainly those around the topics of kind of questioning social narratives that we've all been given, uh, work really hard, get good grades, get a good job. So from this dialogue, I've realized that a lot of my students had a lot of questions, especially for those that are graduating seniors who have a lot of decisions, personal decisions to make. But some of those personal decisions uh, limit some of the opportunities that they also are presented with due to their reality, Uh, reality such as tons of student loans and tons of credit card debt. 
So why did I select the TMBA to as a source for my students throughout various marketing classes is because I feel that your story is really resonates with the students, especially your personal story regarding some of the debt issues that you had upon graduating and not really having a life plan and how you kind of transitioned to leveraging entrepreneurship as the ultimate catalyst for personal freedom and location independence. So without further ado, I'd like to present you with a few of the questions from some of my top social media marketing students here at the Penn State University. All right, Ian, so hopefully this episode can be of service to anyone thinking about making a big life transition or if you're heading out from the school system and you're thinking about what to do with your career, we're going to give a little perspective from the tropical MBA side of things, probably a perspective that is not what your family would necessarily appreciate or endorse. (laughs) Especially if your family is paying your bills right now, they're probably not going to be too happy about this podcast. Alrighty, question number one. Can the fantasy of the digital nomadic lifestyle still be had in 2015? Fantasy? Let me tell you, my friend, I am living in a fantasy if the digital nomadic lifestyle is a fantasy. (laughs) It is not a fantasy. It can still be had in 2015. It's probably easier than ever. Way easier. To live this kind of life in 2015. I think back to all the tools and all the people I knew in 2008, and it was like zero, basically, compared to what there is now. I think of all the people that are living remote lifestyles, either if they're working for somebody or if they own their own business, and it's just a ton of people. I mean, a handful of people write into the show every week telling us that they've achieved that kind of lifestyle. So definitely not a fantasy and definitely getting easier. So the definition of lifestyle design, which is a concept Tim Ferriss put forward in 2007, is that people, if they're willing to design their lives, can live like they're rich while not necessarily being rich yet. So one of the critiques that the location-independent lifestyle always gets is like, yeah, that, that's always been happening, you know? But essentially for rich people, right? Yeah, okay, if you got a couple million bucks in the bank and you feel like that's going to last you for the rest of your life, yeah, you can start to move around and live wherever you want and live in Spain for three years and then move to Japan for a little while or whatever it is that you want to do, work in your pajamas every day from your home office. What's changed is that this lifestyle is now available to people with no money. And I think maybe that's why Brian (laughs) selected Ian and myself to talk about this topic because when we got started, we didn't just have no money. Collectively, between the two of us, My debts, I think, brought us to net negative zero money. We had zero money. We owed people money when we started getting into this. And things have changed so much over the past eight years. It was only in 2006, I want to say, that Skype Out came out. So what Skype Out did was it took the cost of, if you were going to run a business, which I would say this, over 90% of businesses require voice communications with teammates or key clients. So pre-Skype, if you wanted to keep those relationships going from anywhere in the world, it would cost you thousands of dollars a month. After that key technology came out, there was literally a digital nomad explosion because all of a sudden you can go to Thailand where I'm at right now. You can hear my voice clearly. I have 10 megs down. You can call anywhere in the world for a few dollars a month. And so now all of a sudden you have this opportunity of not only 
keeping your clients, keeping your customers from abroad, but you can pull a team together too. So you don't have to hire people that are in your hometown. You can build a team that's global and ours is global as well. So can the digital nomadic fantasy be had? Of course, it's getting easier. It's getting cheaper. And it's really about, you're not going to have the digital nomadic lifestyle if you go work for a big law firm or you buy into some other way of thinking. It's really about looking at these group of people who've said, hey, we're going to build businesses this way and following that path. Can you imagine back in the day, Dan, like, you know, trying to do business when you're living abroad and you like write a postcard to like your your supplier or something. You're like, I'll take the white cheese. <laughs> by the time it gets there, it's not the white cheese. And you're like, bah, you know, two years later. If, if you wanted to do this lifestyle like pre-2006, your business needed to either be established. So it's very hard to establish a business. We've talked about that time and time. I mean, it takes years. So you have to have an established business that you automate yourself out of and take off. You have to build a business based on email or code. And those things are very doable, but they're difficult. It's more difficult than building a business off of relationships, off of getting on the horn, talking with your teammates and your customers directly. And that's more of a possibility than ever. I'll post a picture of it. I was on this gorgeous, like amazing beach yesterday, full 3G. I was streaming Spotify soundtrack. So I mean, the world is more connected than ever. It's possible. All right, we got an audio question from Bradley. And I really love this question. So let's give it a listen. Hi, my name is Brad Ryder, and I'm a graduating senior at Penn State University. My current financial reality is that I need a job after graduation. I got $6,000 in credit card debt, $23,000 in student loans. But I would really love to own my own business in three to five years. So what are the things that I should have in place before giving my boss the finger? I loved this question from Bradley because it is very similar to the situation that I was in when I graduated. I didn't go to Penn State. I went to Clemson. And the reason is, is because my dad went to Penn State, number one. Number two, I had spent my senior year hanging out at Penn State. So I was kind of like, <laughs> I wanted something fresh. So how long were you blackballed from the family? It was a little while. My parents were disappointed. But the real reason is that they wouldn't let me in because I did so bad in high school that they wouldn't let me into main campus. I would have had to go to like a secondary campus for a while. Did your guidance counselor tell you like the things that you needed to be doing your junior and senior year? The list was long, put it that way. There was a lot of things I needed to do. But I think Clemson in a misguided judgment or they're looking for some geographical diversity. There wasn't a lot of Yankees down there. They let me in. And so, <laughs> I, and so I went to Clemson. And when I graduated, Bradley, I had student loan debt, which was quite large, larger than yours, because I went out of state. And I also started to get on the credit card bandwagon because it was weird. I kind of had this mindset like my junior, senior year, like, oh, I'm going to kind of get a job soon so I can maybe start to leverage these credit cards a little bit more. Wrong decision. But that wasn't the worst decision. I wasn't in that bad of a spot because in retrospect, I could have deferred those loans and I could have dealt with those credit card debt such that my real liability was only a few hundred dollars a month. And the truth is, is you can pay that by working at a car wash, or by attending some bar, or by hustling up some lawn mowing gigs. So that's not really the issue. So what I did is I overreacted to that number and solved the problem extremely inefficiently. So I sort of threw out the baby with the bathwater. Like for a few hundred dollars a month liability, I committed to a career that ultimately put me in a worse financial position and got me on the wrong trajectory. So here's what I did. I moved to California. 
I moved into an apartment, signed a year lease. Okay, so I didn't even have a job yet, right? But I knew that there was a quote good job market. Again, you're you're making these decisions based on trends and information you're hearing rather than a specific engagement. <laughs> I got myself a car because I needed to go to the job, and then once I got the job, which was eleven dollars an hour at K two, a really nice global corporation, right? But I wasn't making that much money, and I was living in San Diego. And eventually my buddies who had better degrees than me, they didn't want to share a bedroom anymore. So they moved out. So I had to pay the full rent. And all of a sudden I'm in a debt cycle where at the end of my two week pay period, I'm using another credit card to put gas in my car to make the commute. And what happens when the khakis that my mom, who was kind enough to buy me when I got that job, they start to fray because I'm wearing them twice a week. And all of a sudden, sitting in that car, bumping up and down the highway for two hours a day, my khakis are starting to wear a little thin. And the people that I'm working with all make more money than me because I'm the new person on the block. So when Bradley says, in the one to three year period that I'm going to pay down this stuff, I actually found myself in more debt. Because all of a sudden, your friends are going to want to go on vacation, or your parents are going to want you to visit, or your significant other is going to want to get married, or they're going to want to go on some kind of trip or visit their parents. This stuff wraps up. You're in a trajectory, in a system where it's very difficult to be the exception. So I'm not saying that you can't go get a job. What I'm saying is that you really got to think about the bottom line situation that you're getting yourself into. So I'm just painting a story here. We're going to give an alternative tropical MBA suggestion, a suggestion of what I would advise myself to do if I could go back to this situation. So Ian, before I do that, why don't you let me know a little bit about what your decision-making process was coming out of school? First, Bradley, 6K in credit card debt and 23K in student loans, that's like baby debt. Like children in the United States right now are born with more debt than that. (laughs) So you should consider yourself lucky and essentially debt-free. All jokes aside, like I think you need to change your perspective. And I know this is like very hard because I'm just going to take a guess. But like if you're thinking about money, this amount of money in the way that you are, in the impact that you're going to let it have in the next three to five years in your life, you probably haven't made a lot of money yet. And when you become an entrepreneur and assuming that you're somewhat successful, this kind of money is going to seem trivial to you. And that's something that's happened to me over the last eight years. When I see this kind of money, like, Let's just say in my mind, I look at that and I think like instead of 30K, I think like, oh, that just looks like 3K to me. I mean, it's all perspective, right? And would I like change the trajectory of my life or potentially put my life on hold for 3K? So you got to understand like in my viewpoint, like things like this change. So if it was my life, like I would just like shove this under the rug and focus on getting it done. And we're going to get into that right now, the TMBA style, because I don't think this is a lot of money and I wouldn't even be concerned about this. Like I said, babies are born with more debt than this. If I would have heard what you said back then, I would have panicked just hearing this kind of stuff. But I would really panic at looking at three to five years doing something. I mean, you can completely change your life in three to five years. There's people that have been interviewed on this podcast time and time again that have gone from literally like dropping out of university to becoming more or less wealthy in three to five years. And I think that that's hugely possible if you got that batteries included, if you got that drive and focus and you know what you want to do. Yeah. Can you imagine, Dan, if I came to you and I was like, Dan, we got to start this business together and you looked me in the eyes and you're like, dude, I'm 30K in debt. Like what I got to do is I got to work for the next five years and then maybe like I'll show up. (laughs) But your response was essentially, and if I remember correctly, it was like, hey man, I'm basically already screwed. So like, let's see if I can get like either a little bit more screwed or way out of this ditch. 
And so that's what we shot for was like way out of this ditch. Because honestly, like how much more screwed were you going to be if like you wasted another year of your life screwing around with me trying to make something happen? At least you'd have some experience, right? Yeah. At least you didn't just go get some job. There's all these inherited societal scripts about how long things take. For example, why does a university degree take four years? Well, when I went to university, I had to sit in an astronomy class. I mean, I went to a couple football games. Who's setting the calendar for this stuff? I mean, I basically could have got my degree in a year. And <laughs> this is what happens when you join the real world is that you get to set the degree timeline. And if you join corporate lifestyle, they say things like, oh, 4% every year you get a raise. And you know, if the company does really well, maybe you'll get it like this and it'll go 6%. And it's like, that's just a speed limit that they're setting that you're deciding to follow. So I don't know where three to five years comes from. You know, I think you can build a thriving business in three years if you stay focused on it. So I think the question is, is well, how do you get focused on it? The first thing you got to do is you got to not get a career. <laughs> so maybe there's so much required reading behind all of these ideas. Maybe check out Anti-Fragile. Check out You Don't Need a Speed Limit by Derek Sivers. We'll link to all this stuff. Let's lay out an alternative TMBA plan in three parts. The first part, create zero financial commitments until you have a moneyed engagement in place. It's very common in our culture to go out and say to spend money in order to make money. And this happens even at the middle class level where, so in my case, I went on a multi-hundred dollar shopping trip with my mom in order to quote, get good interviewing or corporate real big boy clothes or whatever. <laughs> like it was wasted money. Maybe I could have gotten by on what I currently had, the best outfit that I had. I could wear that to the interview or whatever. Now, of course, multi-hundred dollars isn't going to be the swing that makes all the difference, but it's the mindset that counts. It's this idea of, you know, I didn't need to move to San Diego before I got a job, especially nowadays, you can get those engagements online. So my first piece of advice is, first off, you got to sort out those loans, right? So you want to get yourself in an emotionally good spot about that. How are you going to pay the $300 a month minimum? And how are you going to defer everything that you can defer? Okay, let's get that sorted. Let's get your mindset straight about that. Now, the second thing is don't make any other commitments. Don't say things like, oh, I need a car to have a job or I need to move to San Diego or to Austin to get a job. Ian and I say pedals and parents. That's where you're at right now. You don't have any money, so you're pedaling a bike, you're living with your parents, you're sleeping on a friend's couch until you can figure out your money situation. If they won't hire you at that bartending job with tassels dangling from your shoulders, you know, <laughs> then that's not the kind of place that you want to work. So the second thing, if you want to own a business in three to five years, the way to do it is not to get a traditional job. It's to get an apprenticeship. So how do you get an apprenticeship and what do they look like? To me, an apprenticeship is an engagement that values learning over earning and a specific kind of learning, which is know-how. So that's actually jumping on a bike, you know, a fixie that's going downhill and those pedals are already going. If you join a fast growing small company, you're just going to have to get the feel of what it's like to balance yourself on a bike like that. And that kind of knowledge is invaluable. I mean, we've all met people who have like a quote MBA or whatever, and they know, you know, how to calculate EBITDA or they know a case study of Coca-Cola cola in 1974 when they rebranded or whatever but that doesn't mean that they know how to run a business at all and so this is the critical knowledge that you need to know if you want to run a business you need to know how to run a business and the way to do that is to actually start running one seth godin said you can't read a book about sex and then be good in the sack i mean you got to get in there and do the rock and roll a couple times apprenticeships also depend on your mentor passing the corner office test this is something I felt quite strongly when I was in the corporate world. 
I would look down at the corner office and I would ask myself if I wanted to be like that person there. And, you know, the answers were either definitely not or it's going to take me 30 years to get there. And so both of those plans sound bad. I'm in the wrong spot. You know, so whoever you're targeting as your potential mentor, they got to pass that corner office test. So back up a little bit, Dan, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast might start to think like, okay, well, I like golf. So should I like go work for TaylorMade? Is that like a good idea? I don't think so. And, you know, this is born and bred. First off, I lived in San Diego, so I know people that work at TaylorMade. So maybe those are close to the bone. But, hey, I worked for K2. I know a lot of people who join corporate because those are the jobs that are available when you go on Craigslist and you do the old spread fire thing, right? I mean, that's basically what a lot of college kids are facing down. I'm going to send out 75 resumes. Hopefully, I'll get two or three interviews. Three or four of them are going to be staffing companies, right, that get you in there and you're all pumped. And then you realize they're just trying to sign you up for their staffing agency. I took anything I could get. I would define an apprenticeship as working for a company with less than 15 employees. Here's the reason. If you go work for TaylorMade, you're not on the fixie. What you're actually learning is know that, not know how. I studied philosophy for four years, which was not required, but I did. And so the difference between know how and know that is really critical for me. Know that is data. It's information about the process. These are the types of things that you learn in corporate jobs like how to fill out a TPS report or what an appropriate sales order looks like for the Disney account. Like these types of things will never be valuable to you when you are running a small business. And again, a small business is defined as anything less than $15 million in revenue. So we're talking about big money. The way to learn how to earn big money is to actually run a business. And as an entry-level employee, I think you can really only do that if you have the ear of the owner. So you know, we're looking at you know anywhere from two to 15 employees and that you are at the decision-making table that you can propose projects and you can execute them and you can make mistakes on other people's dimes. You know, you can run experiments and see what happens. That's critical to learning how to run a business in my view. So those are the types of jobs that I would suggest people look for. These types of jobs are really hard to find. There's a process by a guy named Charlie Hone. He wrote a book called Recession-Free Graduate. It's about doing free work for people. It's hard to give specific advice because it is hard. This isn't spread fire 75 resumes to Craigslist and then do whatever people tell you to do. Again, if you just do what other people tell you to do, you're going to end up in these situations where, yeah, you might wait half a decade for anything to happen. But you can start to create these things for yourself if you're willing to invest a little bit of time and energy. That brings me to the third step of the process, which is because it's probably going to take you a little bit of time to find your apprenticeship. Meanwhile, you're bartending, you're living on couches, you are not spending any money or not engaged until you got a clear salary from somebody, which could take you half a year. So that, again, is what you're sacrificing to take on a new trajectory where other people are saying, you know what, I'll take the 31.5 from K2 annually or whatever, and I'll get him myself to pay 25% of it right off the top to the government and another 25% to my landlord and another 25% to transport, and maybe I'm dropping 5% to the bottom line, assuming I don't go to any family weddings that are remote locations. That's the other path. And this path says, look, be a bartender. Travis Jameson, who was on the show, famously dropped out of school and was a bartender at the university instead of going to the university, right? And now Travis Jameson has done really well for himself. And you go back and listen to his episodes. I just want you to consider this. I'm not saying it's the right path to take or whatever. I just want to lay out this alternate way that you can do 
do this thing and get into this entrepreneurial lifestyle sooner rather than later. Okay, so you're on the couch, you're trying to find an apprenticeship, what do I do in the meantime? Well, the third step is that you start a side project that's relevant to business owners. So this is like your tool shed, Ian. This is your Petri dish. If you're interested in marketing, social media, if you're interested in the hospitality industry, why don't you start a productized service that helps hotel owners get better reviews on TripAdvisor? Something like that. Start running experiments. So how do hotel websites really get guests? Maybe I'm going to take a famous hotel website. I'm going to run a few experiments on my own site and see what the results are. That type of work is going to be relevant to the small businesses that you're targeting for your apprenticeship. So here's the thing. In the university system, you pay tens of thousands of dollars to write one or two sentences on a resume that frankly could be fudged with one or two deletes. And look, we've hired people that have dropped out of school and they say things like attended Penn State University from like this year to this year and they just don't mention that they don't have a degree. And it's like, whatever, I don't care. I care more about the three experiments that you ran, the fact that you're capable of writing a blog that analyzes the trends in hospitality, social media marketing, or the fact that you started a Facebook page that's managed to get 5,000 fans. I'm more interested in that than in your college resume. Honestly, like that's what the university system has to contend with in the coming years, is that small business owners, they care less and less about where you went to university and what you did there, when you can just say, well, what did you do? What have you done? And so I think that's the third part of the process is that you gotta start doing something, something that other people didn't tell you to do, something that you saw for yourself that you felt like you could do for the world. That's the entrepreneurial moment. And look, you're not gonna get paid for it right away. If you demand to get paid for it right away, it's gonna be a job. And if you're gonna be an entrepreneur, you're gonna have to work for free for some time. And that's just what it comes down to, I think, for being an entrepreneur. So one other piece of advice when it comes to finding this entrepreneurial inspiration is that find something that can engage yourself for at least five hours a day. This is the batteries included moment, Ian. You've got it, I've got it. You gotta be willing to sit down and work. And if you need other people to tell you what to do, and you can't inspire yourself, you can't be self-motivated, then you know, keep looking. <laughs> because if you're not willing to work, it's not going to happen. Yeah, and if the only way that you're willing to work is for somebody else, then, well, you're probably not listening to this podcast anyways. So I believe in you. I think that you can work. And yeah, like you said, Dan, you got to put the pedal to the metal at some point. And I think what you're saying about small business owners is exactly right. You know, we're going through another hiring phase. We're hiring over at the DC, and then we're also hiring for our product business. And I could care less for both businesses if this person went to university. I could care everything what they've done. And so, like you said, that's very important. I don't care if it's for another company. I don't care if it's for yourself. Just show me some kind of results because, you know, these credentials, they're not going to do anything for you when your ass is in the chair. You have to have some kind of result for me to care about why I should hire you. So very important to start running your own experiments. Yeah. And social media is also the answer to how do you find these people? You know, you got to be able to have the, the motivation to seek out interesting people on the web. And, and Charlie Hone talks quite a bit about this in his free work video. So we're going to link to that. And finally, we do have a 10-part series on sort of getting started with productized services. So if you need some inspiration on how you can put up a project on the web and get moving, do listen to that 10-part series. Question number three, on a scale of one to 10, how important was social media in scaling your business? Well, I'll say this, the implications of social media, the importance is a 10 out of 10, because most people think that social media is Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And to me, what social media means is peer-to-peer. -peer. 
It just means that like these large monolithic institutions no longer sit in between the message between producer and consumer. And so I remember when we first started our cat furniture company, really like the aha moment for me was learning about search rankings. Remember when we learned about like keyword research, Ian, like that was like such a game changer because we looked at those rankings, like the top page of like, quote, cat furniture or whatever. That was like Main Street back in the day. So if you wanted to start a cat furniture business like 20 years ago, maybe you'd have to commit to rent a lot of money in downtown Cleveland. But when Ian and I saw the top page of Google, we just thought, if we can learn how this works, if we can be compelling to Google, all of a sudden we can go direct to our customer. And it was that idea that made me feel like, wow, I can get into business. I think we're probably just naive enough to think that, Dan. I mean, it was a pretty interesting time, too, because like we had basically zero experience getting to the top rankings of Google, and we just figured we could blow all these dudes away that were at the top of Google. And so I think we're a little bit naive to think that. But hey, with like enough hard work and bottles of wine, like we made it happen. And that's what's important is that we didn't stop until we got there. And like you said, we were able to go directly to customers. An interesting thing happens when you start going directly to customers, you start to get a lot more feedback than you would have gotten if you're just existing in your vacuum. So, you know, in terms of social media and your definition, Dan, I, I definitely agree. It's being able to go directly to your audience and have a conversation with them. And these days, like, I don't know very many businesses that you can afford not to do that. You know what I mean? It's like you have to be doing that in order to be competitive. We have some other social media questions from Mike and Heather. Hi, my name is Heather, and I'm curious, considering all of the noise online, how do you keep your customers engaged in your business? Hi, my name is Michael Schweitzer, and I'm a junior at Penn State University, and I was wondering, what are the toughest challenges in keeping a social media marketing campaign on track and current? All right, Ian, so to piggyback on what you're just saying and to respond to Heather and Mike here is the toughest part about a social media conversation, if that is you going direct to your customers, is you have to have something to say to them. Over the last century, companies didn't really have to get used to that because you could just buy yourself shelf space or you could buy yourself a cat furniture store on Main Street and then people pretty much had to walk by it. Well, nowadays, I don't have to look at your stuff on the internet. And so if you want me to listen to what you're saying, it's got to be good. Seth Godin is really the authority on things like this and his stuff is completely worth reading even now as books stand up. One in particular is called Meatball Sunday. And you see this kind of stuff all over the web, spam on Facebook. Companies that really have nothing to say but hey, buy my stuff or maybe even slightly better, hey, buy my stuff today, it's 20% off or whatever. <laughs> you know, That's called a Meatball Sunday which is a company that doesn't have any story or marketing built into the product. And so all they're doing is basically hawking. And and if you're hawking in the attention economy, you're going to lose because the cream is going to rise to the top when there are so many people competing for attention. You know, I was having this conversation with Derek today, who's running our email campaigns, our email marketing campaigns, and I very much consider that social media and keeping customers engaged there. And one of the interesting things that we have to compete with is having compelling stories because we have relatively boring products. We don't have products that people are talking about over parties, unless, of course, you're a valet parking operator, and then you're talking about it over a party. But when you start to think about it that way, the people that are reading your emails, they are interested in your products, and they are interested in your narrative and what's going on with your company and new things that are going on. So 
I think you have to write this stuff as if you were your customer and you were engaged. And it's not enough to just keep talking about the same product and over and over. I think these days, like you really have to open the curtains a little bit further on your business. Maybe talk about product development. Maybe talk about what you think about the industry. Have some opinions about things. I mean, that's what we do on the show is we just have opinions about what's going on in the lifestyle business space and entrepreneurship. And that's what counts, I think. In terms of keeping people engaged, I think you have to have opinions. That's my tactic and trick for keeping people reading what I'm writing. It's a great point, Ian, because it's part of the reason that so many established companies are terrible at social media is because they're not actually saying anything. Especially if you're just coming out of college, you have nothing to lose. So have a strong point of view. Say, hey, every company that's in the hospitality space needs to be serious about TripAdvisor. And if you're not, you know, you're crazy. And here's all the things that you can do. And here's what I think you should Here's how I think you should be great at TripAdvisor and blah, blah, blah. I mean, these are things that corporations, when you're sitting in a Monday morning meeting with 15 people around the table, they have a hard time making decisions like that. So that's really the value that young people can bring to the business game to more established companies. We got a question from Alyssa. Hi, my name is Alyssa Plants, and I'm a junior at Penn State University. Often you read in a ton of business books about the dangers of partnering with friends and family. How have you and the boss man been able to balance partners first and BFF second? You know, Alyssa, I've, I've sort of waffled on this point so many times because I'm always warning people about partnerships because I've seen so many terrible partnerships in my life. It's just one of these decisions you don't make very often. So people don't have practice and then they make the decision and it's, it just is terrible. But on the other side, I've seen so many great business partnerships. I think Ian and I are an example of that. And we have a lot of friends, you know, Jimmy and Doug from Manal. And I could go on and on about people that have sort of made each other better by getting together. Of course, John Lennon and Paul McCartney are a great example. You can do the math yourself. Go listen to their solo records. It just didn't add up. So sometimes having a partnership creates that tension, that accountability, the feedback loops, the honesty that can make a business succeed. So how do you make it work? What do you think, Ian? Harrison, cue the music. That's what I'm talking about. I think you gotta have I think you gotta have a little bit of respect for yourself and for your partner. I think that's why it's worked out so well for us, Dan. But that's just one of the reasons. The main reason, like you said, is that, like you just can't be sitting around and thinking that it's going to work out with people that are ready at hand. Basically, I think you have to have somebody that has a similar life trajectory as you. They want to go to the same places. And I know that might be hard to figure out when you're first getting out of college because a lot of us were rudderless. You know, it's just like two rudderless boats bumping into each other, but maybe that's enough, you know, until you can get to that next phase in your life where you can have a little bit more clarity. But either way, I think that you got to kind of be on the same tracks with this person. And we've been lucky enough to kind of stay on similar paths, Dan. And yeah, of course, there's times where there's like a tree in between the tracks and then we kind of come back together. But that for me is what really makes it work. I've had some experience like this because I was always throwing together rock bands when I was in college. And you learn pretty quickly that if you need a bass player, just because the guy down the hall in the dorm has a bass doesn't mean he's the right guy. And just because he's cool doesn't mean he's the right guy to plug into your band. And I think that that's what happens with brothers, sisters, girlfriends, boyfriends, best friends, is that you're excited about what you're doing. And so rather than looking for someone that is appropriately excited, they have their own batteries included, they want the same thing, they're just there. And so you kind of want to share it with them. You want to get them on board. And if you're feeling like you're having to bring somebody on board, they're probably not the right person. It's also probably worth mentioning that we've done a lot of episodes that really go into the partnership issues. So you can search on our website if you want to hear more about that. Those are in the archives. All right. So Ian, final question. 
And it might be one of the most frequently asked questions of all time. I'm not sure you sufficiently quenched the curiosity. Why cat furniture? I feel like I've talked about this a lot of times. Maybe it's just not on the podcast. But so here's the official story. And it's not really that exciting. So I'll try try and jazz it up a little bit. But I had a project in college. I think it was my junior year. Somebody came in. I can't remember what company they were from. It was like PetMate or something. They were sponsoring our class. And he basically said, I want you guys to design and develop. I was an industrial designer. Getting my degree in industrial design. I want you guys to design and develop the new pet products that are coming out for next season or whatever. And so I designed this odd looking furniture that we called the modern cat condo. It was a huge disaster. (laughs) No, I mean, what I should have done, honestly, is like this thing was too abstract. And because of that, it didn't sell well. What I should have done is like taken an existing modern cat condo and made some cool additions. Instead, I went this whole new market segment that uh, nobody knew about. We ended up spending a bunch of money educating people. Disaster. But that's how the cat furniture started, was that I had this idea that I went into Petco and I said, okay, everybody's designing for dogs. I'm going to design for cats. Cats have like one end cap. Dogs have three aisles. And I figured, you know, if everybody's spending this much money on dogs, some people want to spend on their cats. Turns out that they are. It's it's turned into quite a little nice market. Not necessarily for us, but for our competitors. <laughs> that is the story of why cat furniture. Sorry, again, not very exciting. But it is interesting, though, to think about the legacy. You know, I'm like sitting here in my house right now looking at a piece of that furniture. We're still talking about it, Dan, 10 years later. And so it's these things that you do, especially if they can get traction, they do have so much legacy and it ends up weaving a piece of thread through my life for the past 10 years. So kind of crazy. Yeah. And something to think about is some of our listeners today, they're in college right now. They're thinking about what the next step is going to be. And to think that you had that confidence to say, hey, I'm a valuable enough guy to be a cat furniture designer and I can have my stuff on the shelves of Petco. And you had no reason to believe that or think that about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe you didn't have any other choice or you didn't feel like there was any other option for you or you didn't want to go work a job for the rest of your life. And so what the hell? You know, we used to go to college parties. We know what that's all about, going to the football games, the beer funnels and stuff. Yes, we do. And now we go to these, you know, entrepreneur parties. And, you know, the beverages have changed slightly. Faces have changed. But what I learned, you know, it's a great learning experience if you can find your way into this crowd is that these aren't special people. You know, these aren't people that were born with a golden egg or that knew something that you don't know or that had a rich aunt that invested in their business. These are people that believed in the trajectory, that believed in the ownership route, that read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and decided they wanted to be Rich Dad, but that they didn't get caught up in careerism. They didn't get caught up in following the scripts that others had provided them. And they decided at some point that they were willing to, for whatever reason, write their own. And the parties, honestly, they look much different and they look much better. The cool thing about it, Ian, is it's an open door policy. What gets you into the party is the work and the belief in the trajectory. And if you're willing to do the work and if your work has results, you get to the party. I saw this video of John Mayer, who's, I really admire his career and the work that he's done. And he said to a group of college students, stay in on Friday night and do your work. The party gets better. And that really stuck with me because there were so many Friday nights that we stayed in. You know, one of the hardest parts about becoming an entrepreneur for me when I was younger is I was living in San Diego, man. There were so many like events that like, hey, we're all doing this. We're all going to the beach this weekend. And I stopped going to the beach on the weekend because I had a job. And so I started staying in and started working on this business. 
So I was building cat furniture landing pages while my friends were having surfing parties on the beach. And that's that concept of if you're just going to do what, you know, everybody that's on that path is doing, then you're going to get the same results. And I just want to clarify, Dan, because we only speak the truth on this podcast. We were staying in Friday nights, working, drinking copious amounts of wine. So (laughs) it's not that we weren't partying. We just weren't going to the party. We were creating our own party in which we hope to amass millions of pieces of cat furniture. Alrighty, and so I'm just so thrilled to be able to speak directly to Penn State students because it's such a big part of my life. I just wanted to mention, you know, the first song I was ever able to play on the trombone was the Penn State fight song. Are you familiar with it? I'm just going to roll it right now so that you can get the vibe. We are Buddy. Have you ever seen this, Ian, where Beaver Stadium, they do the We Are Penn State thing? Are you familiar with this? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's absolutely electrifying. Like, I've showed it to people that, like, haven't been to the U.S. yet, and I was like, this is U.S. culture. Watch this. I was like, <laughs> it must be like ancient Rome and the gladiators or something. In the Penn State tradition, it's a very friendly place, you know, Happy Valley. I'm assuming then, since you've seen it on YouTube, you're familiar with the response. I think we owe them a response. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. The show notes and links to everything we mentioned on this episode will be at tropicalmba.com slash student loan debt. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.